Now it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Gregory Rodriguez. Gregory Rodriguez is the founder, publisher, and editor-in-chief of Socolow Public Square. He has written for such leading publications as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, Time, Newsweek, and the Los Angeles Times, where he was a longtime op-ed columnist. He is the author of Mongrels, Bastards, Orphans, and Vagabonds, Mexican Immigration and the Future of Race in America, which the Washington Post listed among the best books of the year. In 2012, he was named a Goldman Sachs Senior Fellow at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. He also founded and directs the What It Means to Be American Project with the Smithsonian Institution. Please give a very warm Welcome to Mr. Gregory Rodriguez. Hi. This is kind of cool. Um, we're really pleased to have Pankaj Mishra here, and I'm going to start out by telling you uh, his bio and then a little bit about what I think his book's about so we can, uh, I hope, delve into him a little bit and uh, the interesting mind and the conflicts, I think, emotional and intellectual conflicts that give rise to some of these amazing um, uh, your amazing take on the world. Uh, Pankaj Mishra is an essayist and author of several award-winning books, including An End to Suffering, The Buddha in the World, From the Ruins of Empire, The Revolt Against the West, and The Remaking of Asia, and his latest, as Lewis said, The Age of Anger, a, a History of the Present, which was named one of the New York Times Notable Books of 2017 and one of NPR's Best Books of the Year. He frequently writes literary and political essays for the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, and Bloomberg View, I think I missed a couple. The Guardian, The New Yorker, London Review of Books, among other American, British, and Indian publications. Born in North India, he now lives in London, where he is also a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Pankaj Mishra. You got howls. <laughs> um, I, I want to frame this again, as I said, and, and I've actually run this by Pankaj. I, I, uh, when, I, when I read uh, Age of Anger, I, I don't know, I was in Joshua Tree when I got back. I was read it in Hawaii, and I went back to the desert, and I, I, it was bothering me, and, uh, and I had to write about it. So I had to write it, and, and so this is my characterization, author approved, of, uh, of uh, Age of Anger. Um, Pankaj Mishra's brilliant new book, The Age of Anger, The History of the Present, A History of the Present, Mishra is a, sweeping, is a sweeping, textured, unified theory of our dysfunctional age and explains what angry Trumpites, Brexiteers, and radical Islamists all have in common, an utter fear of the void. He eschews facile political or religious explanations for the rise of nihilistic social movements around the world. He points to a crisis of meaning wrought by globalization. He sees the destruction of local, intimate, and long-rooted long systems of meaning as the opening of a spiritual Pandora's box within which lies infinite doubt and disillusion. Mishra sees these negative solidarity movements as the psychically disenfranchised, targeting what they see as, quote, venal, callous, and mendacious elites, unquote. Brexiteers railed against liberal cosmopolitan technocrats, as did Trump's white nationalists. Radical Islamists loathe the hedonism and rootlessness of wealthy Muslims who've surrendered to Western consumer society. Rather than advocate for an agenda that would provide them tangible returns, they all cling to nostalgia for simpler times and rally around their hatred for those they see as the winners in a new world order. 
In Mishra's view, this new world order isn't simply neoliberal capitalism allowing money, goods, and services to flow unimpeded across the globe. It's also the attendant ideal of liberal cosmopolitanism, first advocated in the 18th century by Enlightenment thinkers like Montesquieu, Adam Smith, Voltaire, and Kant. It's the belief in a universal commercial society made up of self-interested, rational individuals who seek fulfillment. Theoretically, modern global capitalism liberates individuals from the constraints of tradition and encourages them to move about freely, deploy their skills, and fulfill their dreams. But the burdens of individualism and mobility, writes Mishra, can be as difficult to carry for those who succeeded in fulfilling that modern vision as for those who cannot. A decade ago, for instance, one study found that a disproportionate number of Muslim militants have engineering degrees. So while accepting the convention of traditional society may leave a person feeling as if he or she were less than an individual, rejecting those conventions, conventions in Misha's words, quote, is to, is to assume an intolerable burden of freedom in often fundamentally discouraging conditions. What seems to concern Mishra most is what uh, is that when personal freedom and free enterprise are conflated, the, ambition, the ambitions released by the spread of individualism overwhelm the capacity of existing institutions to satisfy them. There are simply not enough opportunities to absorb the myriad desires of billions of single-minded young people. Okay, yeah, exactly. As Mishra sees it, today's nihilistic politics are themselves a product of a sense of nothingness felt by growing numbers of uprooted outsiders who failed to find their place in the commercial metropolis. Quote, a moral and spiritual vacuum, he writes, is yet again filled up with anarchic expressions of individuality and mad quests for substitute religions and modes of transcendence. Please read the book. <laughs> what I find most compelling about the book is that it's not as angry as it sometimes seems. It's cogent, it has depth, um, and it's not, a, it's not a harangue. It's not, it's not political per se in, in the sense that it's not arguing a political point of view. Um, and, and he writes early on that he feels sympathetic to both sides of the debate. Um, you write, I know that the divergent experiences invoked are the polemical representatives of East and West, loss and fulfillment, deprivation and plenitude, and coexist within the same person. Human identity, frequently seen as fixed and singular, is always manifold and self-conflicted. This is why you emphasize the subjective experience and the contradictory notions of selfhood. So my first question is that early on in the book, you call yourself a stepchild of the West. What do you mean by that? And could you tell us a little bit about your parents? their relationship to one another, and how you get along with each. Oh. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for your kind introduction and also um, an incredibly shrewd summary of the book, actually. Um, I should have hired you as my publicist. Um, you are paying me later, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think um, practically everything I've written, whether it's um, intellectual history or travel writing, or, or indeed fiction, um, has come out of my experience and also the experiences of people that I've grown up with. 
uh, that's just not not only people in my own family, but the people I went to college with, the people whose lives I observed um, as they left college and plunged into this vast, chaotic, uncertain world of unemployment, and then um, long years of struggle, um, watching their aspiration for stability and contentment being repeatedly frustrated. So everything I really write comes out of um, these, this particular stock of observations and, and, and encounters over several years. So even with Age of Anger, I was really writing about the kind of young men I had grown up with, and they also happened to be the young men that you can now find in large parts of Asia and Africa. People educated up to a certain level, people who have in many ways been uprooted from their traditional habitats, whether it's a small town or the village, who have been brought out of these places by the promise of prosperity and stability, a better life, progress of some kind. And then after having displaced themselves, um, they realize that actually those promises are false, that they, are, that they cannot be fulfilled, or, or in fact, they are unfulfillable, many of them. So that experience of frustration, that experience of disappointment is something that is very, very common and has been very common and is something that is not reflected in our mainstream media, in the kind of books that are written about countries like India or indeed many, many African countries where the emphasis is on the people who are making it the people who can emerge from a slum and become a millionaire. The slum dog can be a millionaire. That, is, that has been the narrative for a long time about these places, about these countries. And my effort has been really to push back against this boosterish narrative, which obviously helps a lot of people make money, circulate money, and, you know, essentially create illusions that are of use only to a tiny minority. Mm. What we've seen, and many, you know, I'm not the only one doing this, there are many of us who's, who've been sort of trying to put forward this alternative narrative, which is one of aspiration, ambition, and disappointment. But more importantly, the experience of uprootedness, both physical and emotional. The experience of leaving one's home, which is, you know, you asked me about my parents, that's an experience that most um, people of my parents' generation underwent. Of course, they were growing up, they grew up in a very different country altogether. Um, India today is an almost unrecognizable country for that generation, even for someone like myself, who's kind of, you know, who 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 know who knows enough of the old India to be able to contrast it with the new India. For them, I think it was a traumatic experience to leave their villages, their particular communities, to find themselves in the broader 
largely urban world without any support systems, without any sources of identity, they had to really reinvent themselves and make themselves up out of nothing. And that, you know, is something that I find that not just my parents, but also, you know, other people in my family or people I've, I've, I've known. They went from the rural to a, a, a city. Absolutely. Now, this is, again, I mean, I think, you know, something that I've tried to emphasize in this book and other writings that, again, this is not an experience peculiar to India or Asia or Africa. This is something we first saw in Europe in the 19th century. You know, if you, if you think about it for a moment, European literature of the 19th century is largely about this experience, whether it's Flaubert or whether it's Dostoevsky, it's Gogol, it's, they're talking about the young man, often the young man, women don't really enter the picture at this point, uh, who leaves his or her town, small town or village to go to the big city. That experience of displacement, that experience then of alienation, really is the source material for so much of literature mm -hmm. and also so much of philosophy mm -hmm. in, the, in the 19th century. That experience of uprootedness is something that is now global, that is now universal, because the same processes that brought those people out from their rural existence and into large metropolises, into factories with degrading work conditions, that experience is now, those processes are now universal mm -hmm. because industrial capitalism has now penetrated. And no longer requires migration. No longer requires that same kind of uh, migration. So I think, you know, what we are really looking at is a particular experience, particular in the 19th century, now globalized, now universalized. Mm -hmm. And that is really broadly the framework with which I've been working. Uh, to see whatever is happening today mm. in a framework that begins in the late 18th century mm. and that is still continuing with all its conflicts, with all its inattentions, with all its contradictions. And those contradictions are felt most painfully within one's own soul, within one's own divided self. Your parents moved from a rural region to the city. You were born in the city. Mm -hmm. um, in a small town, actually. In a small town, mm -hmm. okay. Um, were you sort of born into a household in a in, in cultural transition? And are you, in a sense, you were not a, you were brought up within their transition, is that's what you're implying, right? And so um, uh, what did they, what did you learn in the way they figured out how to recreate meaning in their new world, what were their what were their sources of strength, and what did they figure out in this transition? Well, you know, I think for for most people of that generation, um, it was much easier to stay close to the life they had grown up with, so not to actually abandon the old sources of comfort and identity, and by which I mean not actually giving up religion um, and recreating it in the new context with the help of you know some some local guru or some 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 local sect uh, which is really the trajectory again of of millions of people right. um, because to go over to the other side which is to become 
fully secularized or modern is a journey very few people are able to take. Mm. And that requires also a great deal of material success. You know, you need to be, you need to sort of be at a certain income level mm. to let go of those kinds of comforts. Right. Um, and I think, you know, that is not, that doesn't happen for most people. So for, for them, I think uh, it was in a way easy to hold on to what they had inherited from their parents and their grandparents. Mm. My generation had to make a cleaner break because we grew up going to English medium schools like, like many people in, 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 in that part of the world and finding that there's a gap that opens up between the way we perceive the world through a Western style of education and the way they have perceived the world mm -hmm. coming from a rural background. So that is the obligation of many people to negotiate this particular transition. And it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one. That's what I mean when I say I'm a stepchild of the West because the West is seen as something you have to come to terms with. You have to learn its ways. You have to learn about its history. You have to learn its literature. People living here have never felt that obligation to learn anything about Asia. In fact, most people don't bother at all. Um, but that is not something, that is not an obligation or responsibility you can shirk in India. So you are aware of this enormous presence in your life that really shapes your choices, shapes your life in all kinds of both visible and invisible ways. Mm -hmm. And you simply have to, you have to really come to terms with it. There's just no way of avoiding it. And people who fail to, people who fail to, who fail to learn the English language, know that their prospects, all the things that they hope for, uh, will not be achievable. That so they will your break was more dramatic than your father's break in many ways from tradition. That's what you're implying. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And yet in, the, in both Age of Anger and uh, An End to Suffering, you refer to men like your father and millions like him. But to what extent were you talking about yourself then? Well, you know, I'm, as I said, I mean, I think um, I'm writing out of not just my own experience, but um, the experiences of people around me, the experiences mm -hmm. of people I grew up with. And often, you know, it's very difficult to sort of draw uh, clear-cut boundaries because in many different ways we undergo these kinds of psychological conflicts and, 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 and contradictions, all of us, you know, no matter where we are in this, in this particular process or in this particular trajectory. So I think, you know, um, my parents, I, I'm probably not aware of the problems and, and tensions that they had to undergo at mm -hmm. certain stages, um, you know, those things perhaps will always remain a mystery to me. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I know for sure um, the kind of problems that people from a rural and small town background of my generation, people from my generation, mm -hmm. have had to face, have had to, the problems they've had to sort of really kind of confront before they could find themselves in a secure place, and sometimes to never find that place. So, rejecting then the the promise of English, as you as you indicate, 
is not an option either. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because that is your passport to the modern world. And the modern world is where you're supposed to end up. So you have to seek an application for the passport, but it may not ever get you to where you think it's going to yes. take you. Yes. And, and, and the fact that the application is denied, is rejected so many times that you have to completely make over your, you completely transform your personality, undergo this radical makeover of your soul, um, abandon, reject aspects of yourself, yeah. part of your tradition, make yourself something completely unrecognizable for your own parents sometimes, and then collide with failure. That is a that is a that is that is actually a very commonplace experience. So a lot of the rage that I'm describing is not just a rage of economic inequality. Absolutely. It's not just a rage of people feeling that the system is rigged or unfair. Um, it's really this particular transition of turning yourself or making yourself an individual, okay. of breaking free from the authority of custom, tradition, family, community. Again, a process that started in the late right. 18th century and, and you know, theorized during the Enlightenment and now a universal process. Um, that process, that whole project of becoming an individual, how difficult it is for, for many, many people, how traumatic it is, especially when you don't have the resources, necessary resources. Now we are finding, of course, that people in the heart of the modern West also have that problem when they lack those kinds of resources, when material circumstances are not favoring them, when there's an economic crisis. You published An, an End of Suffering in 2004 and The Age of Anger in 2017. And I I read The Age of Anger first and then The End of Suffering later. Um, suffering has passages that are clear beginnings of anger, uh, but it seems to have a very different tone. Um, anger is a deeper and far more far-reaching explanation of the phenomenon you're exploring, but what changed in your feelings and approach to the subject in the intervening years? There are, there are actually paragraphs, if not pages, in a book in 2004 that really get to the core of what he's going to write about many years later. So what happened in between? That's an interesting thought. Um, you know, Proust said something um, like how everything that can be said has been said. But <laughs> since nobody listens, <laughs> you have to repeat it. <laughs> and perhaps a change of tone in, in Age of Anger uh, may be put down to the fact that I just got pissed off that nobody was listening. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 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 um, it's you know it's not as um, let's say untroubled or serene as it is in the in the in the first book. Uh, you you also probably were a different. You were younger then. You were you. There seemed to have some naivete and and the earlier book. Yeah, was, it's described. It's also described. It's also describing a young man. Yeah, I'm very happy today. Okay, I'm not implying you're not, but you seem happier in 2004. I'm 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 actually happier today. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. Good. You mentioned um, you you actually referred to it as idolatry of Western writers at one point um, when you were young. Um, I'm I think I'm romanticizing your youth at this, so so forgive me. Um, 
were you or are you uh, disillusioned? And then, and when and how did that intellectual emotional break? How did it express itself? Um, was there some sort of a negative epiphany you had? Um, I wish I could claim, make that claim, but no. Uh, I think something much much more dull, which is please please tell me, <laughs> which is really I mean you know mostly I think it's a process of just thinking more and 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 and. Uh, broadening your range of references, mm -hmm. um, understanding how other people have dealt with the same issues, um, not just in India, but in other parts of the world. When I wrote that book, I perhaps was not aware, I had read a lot of Russian writers, I read a lot of Japanese writers, but I was not able to relate their experiences uh, to the experiences of people living in India, right. because they were the first to confront this whole difficult project, which was of remaking yourself, reinventing yourself, along the lines prescribed by Western Europe, mm -hmm. the Russians and the Japanese, the Germans, of course. Um, and the conflicts and tensions that they experienced during this whole process, which they described in the literature, which they described in the philosophy, speaks very directly to people in India, and one reason why the Russian writers are you know, perhaps more loved, more cherished than writers from any, any other country, which is also the case for many countries in, in Asia. But exploring that there was precedent to this that's happening now didn't, give you, didn't seem to give you any comfort, uh, that, that, that there were previous breaks, previous tendencies toward, toward anarchic rage. Um, so precedent didn't make you think that I think, I, I think there is, there is um, something therapeutic about understanding. Um, I've, I feel, I've, I've certainly felt that. That has certainly motivated me to, to get to the bottom of things. Um, and it's always out of a sense of perplexity. Uh, it's <laughs> always, I mean, everything I write really is driven by my own confusion and ignorance. Um, that I have to figure something out, and, and so I will read, and I'll read widely to, to understand. When, when I do understand it, um, it's the kind of insight that almost feels redemptive. Right. Um, Does it, are, you no long, are you less interested once you figure it out? No, then no, because then, the then, it has to, then it has to be connected to something else. Yeah. Uh, you know, all these little blocks of knowledge have to be put together. Uh, so the writing kind of, is putting the puzzle kind of together. Edifice, yeah, uh, which is which is a book uh, mm -hmm. essentially. You write almost adoringly about the U.S. and suffering. Um, how has your view of this country evolved since then? Oh, um, <laughs> I do want to keep visiting it, uh, <laughs> and this is being recorded. <laughs> but I suppose in the in the age of Trump, uh, it's become perfectly all right to be anti-American. <laughs> He's made it um, completely legitimate. Look, I, I was never um, anti-American. I mean, I think, you know, American writers, American philosophers have been absolutely indispensable in my own education. And, I'm, and I personally owe a lot to American friends who've supported me, um, you know, all through my career. So I feel connected to this country in all kinds of ways, and I feel very much, in a way, engaged by it, 
and, and involved by it. Um, so no sort of facile opinion, really. Um, I, I don't think I've ever really actually passed a sort of uh, superficial opinion on what is happening in this country. But when I was writing that book, I was thinking of it as a place where Buddhism had found a new home. You know, this is some one of the... In 2004. Uh, right? In 2004, um, a very under-regarded but a hugely important historical fact that Buddhism went to the West and found a hospitable home in the United States mm. where it flourishes, where it has continued to flourish. It has often taken on forms that are not perhaps the most appealing, <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, uh, for, for the most part, um, it has flourished beautifully. Mm-hmm. And that impressed you? Absolutely it did, absolutely it did. Um, and I think that, for me, counts, you know, uh, that, that in, in, in my book that counts a great, it, it actually cancels out Trump. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the same time, you know, as someone from India who also has felt the sharp edge of American imperial power in that part of the world, it's very difficult not to be critical and often stridently so of American policies in that in that region and in fact other right. parts of other parts of Asia. So again, you you have this um, you know this this sort of deeply ambivalent relationship with the country in the sense that you're close to the people, you're close to the literature, and at the same time very, very strongly opposed mm-hmm. to the policies that make life right. miserable for millions of people. But presumably, you're talking about the, the modernity, you're talking about the scourge of modernity, you're talking about hyper-individualism, and, uh, modes of uh, being unmoored from, from the transcendent and, and giving, giving way to the commercial. I mean, aren't the, isn't the American the hyper emblem of, of modernity that you're... That I you think that's right. I think that's right. So I mean, I don't, think, you, don't um, you feel, do you have no empathy for us? <laughs> I have deep empathy because we are, we are all Americans now. So, you know, this, this is how we have to now start thinking of ourselves. That's right? what this book should have been titled. Probably. Again, see, you, you have the best lines, you have the best titles. <laughs> uh, I really should have. He'll be you. back again next Tuesday. <laughs> But it's absolutely right. I think, you know, America is the most radical experiment in human history. It's something completely new. We have not seen anything like this before. The whole idea of creating a country based upon the idea of expansion, of growth, endless growth. And of course, there was enough land, there were enough resources to make that dream fulfillable for many, many people. Uh, for over a very long period. And this is, where, this is where I feel now a sense of foreboding because I feel like we've come to the end of that experiment and that a new American experiment has to begin, which conceives of, and this is again of world historical importance for the rest of us, right. um, which, which, which thinks of how do we live together, ethnically, religiously diverse societies, all kinds of you know, different ways of being. Um, how do we accommodate all these very many different people 
in a single society. This whole notion of um, pursuing your self-interest, pursuing the American dream, I don't think that's enough anymore. And, and it's also the same, same is true for, for, for you know, societies elsewhere. Which leads me to my next question, which is, if, it's not only a new American experiment we may be envisioning, but, but once this age of anger burns out, and it inevitably will, wouldn't you expect some sort of religious revival or some new modes and broad modes of sense and interpretations of the transcendent to emerge? Well, maybe, if, even Please? if not that, even if not that, um, certainly a sense that a societies, an awareness that societies that we live in are deeply unjust and that we need to embrace an idea of a good society where these injustices, these structural cruelties are simply not allowed to prevail or to be entrenched. I think that awareness itself that we need to fight, we need to fight these injustices and cruelties, which is you know, something that now a lot of young people have because they don't have much baggage from the past. Um, they are looking at this world today, they're, they're, they're responding it they're responding to it in very direct, simple ways as a very unjust place. But, but wouldn't a sense of justice have to be rooted in a more systemic view of the world? Well, I think, you know, if you, if you feel a sense of responsibility to others, if you acknowledge the dignity of other individuals, other people, if you even think that you belong to a society, you belong to a community where you're responsible to other people, you're already a deeply spiritual person. Understood, but doesn't it require some sort of infrastructure or a system of thinking to encourage that in people, particularly in those who aren't doing it naturally? I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it seems fine to say you know, people will have a sense of justice, but doesn't there have to be a larger, broader, ongoing support for such type of thinking? Well, absolutely. I mean, this is where I, I think the, the, the problem is that today's inst the, the existing institutions today are simply not equipped to channel some of these energies. Absolutely. And, and this, that, is, this is a big but problem. But are we going to find... So is, is after all this rage is over, we're just going to have the sense of justice to correct injustice? Isn't there a... Aren't you actually... There's nothing apocalyptic about this book. Um, isn't, is there anything possibly redemptive in new forms of, trans, of, a, of our view, of, of, an, of a collective views toward the transcendent? You have no hope for that. Well, I think, you know... Or maybe uh, that's just a new nightmare for you. I feel that we've, we've invested far too much in utopia. We've invested uh, far too much in, these, in this fantasy of universal progress um, that... We've arrived at the end of history. American-style capitalism is the only way to go. I mean, basically exporting transcendental ideas into secular society, right. positing these utopian goals and saying, we are getting there. Eventually, it's taking some time, but we are getting there. And now I think what we are seeing is, is a rejection of those visions, a very angry reje rejection okay. of those visions, because they have been exposed as essentially a kind of ideological cover for a tiny minority which was cornering all the benefits of global growth uh, for itself. And 
there is very little, you know, there's, there's very little faith left, left in that project anymore. Okay. I think uh, we shouldn't try and replace those discredited ideas mm-hmm. or those pseudo-transcendental ideas with some other form of transcendence. Let's talk about something very basic. Let's talk about fraternity. Let's talk about justice. You know, let's start there. So, which leads me to Nietzsche's view of the Buddha and how that has influenced the way you wrote this book. If you could, and also actually before that, you, are you, uh, you cite and thank John Gray, the, the philosopher. Are you friends? Yes, we are, yeah. Can you just tell me what you guys talk about? <laughs> because he, 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 he writes eloquently about the illusion of progress and, and the, sort of the limits of the enlightenment. Uh, yeah, what do you talk about? We, we talk a lot about that. Um, and the fact that we've invested by, by we, I mean, you know, most of, most of us educated people, we've thought of progress as a kind of substitute religion. And it, in, in fact, it has been uh, a kind of irreplaceable religion for a very long time. I think when God was killed off, um, the only idea that could take its place was improvement, continuous, irreversible improvement, that our lives we would, would, would get a bet better all the time. Now, this is something that has driven, motivated several generations now. But, you know, people like John Gray and others have been saying for a long time that at some point this is going to come to an end. And, and, and meaning will be derived locally and more intimately absolutely. rather than in a absolutely. belief in the universal ideals. Absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, the fact is that many people, many young people today, even in some of the richest countries in the world today, feel that their lives are not going to be significantly better than the lives of their parents. In fact, they might be significant, significantly worse. Now, this is a radical shift in human history to, for generations to start thinking that progress is not happening. And I feel that a lot of the political phenomena today really um, are a straight consequence of that kind of thinking. So what did Nietzsche think of the Buddha and of Buddhism? Well, he had high regard for it. Um, He recognized the Buddha as a kindred spirit, someone who was essentially a psychologist, someone who had seen very deep inside the human soul and divined its sort of hiding places. It's the, 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 the myriad ways in which um, the human self deceives itself. Mm-hmm. He knew that the Buddha had preceded him in these insights. Um, and also that the Buddha was essentially a healer of the soul, of, of, of um, modern man's soul. And I think that uh, made him unusually, unusually hospitable to Buddhist ideas, especially when he compared it to his denunciation of all other religions. Mm-hmm. Um, and because he, re- he recognized it's not really a religion, it's a sort of, it's essentially a kind of therapeutic way of understanding the world, primarily, primarily driven by the desire to, to heal rather than to arrive at some sort of a cognitive understanding. You've written about the process of becoming accustomed to living in London. Um, And my notes say, read passage, but I don't have it here. (laughs) Um, So, but I haven't seen, and and perhaps I've missed it, um, how would you describe your feelings about going 
to India in the same way. From well, you describe getting used to London; it becomes less foreign to you each year. And I'm, I'm wondering if, conversely, uh, moving to London has what is your relationship to India as you go home? Are, are, in the same way, you be, are you becoming, to some extent, is it becoming foreign to you? Uh, is there a nostalgia? Is uh, what is your relationship to? To you know, you're still a citizen. I am. Yeah. Um, I go there a lot. I go there four or five times a year. Um, but you know, I feel that the world should be a strange place. Um, I think for for a writer at least, mm. it should not be a place where you feel at home. Because if you feel at home, then how are you going to observe? What will be really the motivation for you? It's only out of a feeling of alienation, feeling of being marginalized, uh, and also feeling that you don't understand anymore, and, and that you have to work harder, that you have to really sort of try and focus and think. It's only then that you'll actually be able to come up with something interesting as a writer. So I've never um, been afraid of this feeling that I'm a stranger now, or becoming a stranger. So you thrive in your in-betweenness. I do. I feel that that is actually a, a place in the way of, that others of, might um, be confused by it. You, I, feel, I find it, that it it's a place you. of creativity for me, um, a place where I can I can think best about myself and about other things that are happening in the world. Because again, I says that feeling too much at home in the world um, is a recipe for complacency and, and, and um, certainly a kind of intellectual laziness. One of the things I worry about in Trump's America is that is it's hard not to respond to the news, to the negativity, to the insults, the mean-spiritedness. And, is, is, and you mentioned this somewhere, and to what extent we become, when we resist, at what, become, at what, at what percent are we being programmed by that which we disdain most? Um, and you write about uh, Gandhi and, and Vaclav Havel's notion of anti-political politics. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit what, what Havel meant by that and how it might apply to, to the way we should be thinking in Trump's America. Well, you know, Havel's famous formulation, sort of living in truth, um, which meant really rejecting the lie, the big lie that the state imposes upon you, in his case, the, the communist state, I feel that we have to reformulate this notion. Uh, it's interesting you ask this question. Um, My questions are very interesting. You might have noted that. <laughs> <laughs> because I've, I've, been, I've been thinking about this, this um, whole question of anti-politics, politics, and I wonder whether we need to think about this differently, because it's not so much the state in this instance that is spreading the lie. In many ways, we are too much complicit with the lie in the way uh, we consume the news, in the way we are captive to this, to essentially what is a circus. And Preach it, brother. Yeah. <laughs> and remain sort of, you know, completely spellbound by it, continue to respond to it uh, practically every day, 
And I feel that too much of our energies, too much of our attention spans are being monopolized by what is essentially a completely sterile activity, okay. which is simply monitoring you know, the Groper-in-Chief's tweets <laughs> um, <laughs> delivered at 4 a.m. in the morning. That itself, I mean, when you look at the media, it's, it's very hard to read the newspapers today because all they do is simply report what he said and what other people have said in response to those tweets and what m even other people have said in response to what other people have said about those tweets. <laughs> uh, and and so, it's, so it goes on. Um, and I, I feel that um, actually it's not, in this instance, it's not the, a central authority that is fabricating... Uh, manipulating, you know, various truths and forcing people to believe in them is that we voluntarily are participating in this festival of malice and propaganda. That the one way of living in truth would be to withdraw from it. But that would be like not applying for the application for the passport in India and learn not learning English, <laughs> right? I mean, that would be if I would love to not read the paper every day, but I would feel that somehow by saving my my saving my sanity would make me a bad citizen. Yeah, I know. You know, I think uh, having Zoklo Public Square, which is obviously you you thought of it perhaps as an alternative platform, an alternative venue to the big noise of the media, you know, where you can have discussions, where you can have conversations um, about the ways in which we handle this and uh, tackle this situation. Uh, because, I mean, to be honest, I feel that uh, a lot of our existing institutions, I've said this before, are simply not equipped to deal with this situation. They are too much struck in old modes of thinking and reacting. And it's also true that they haven't had the time to withdraw and to rethink their strategies. That someone like Trump has, has benefited hugely from the other side's inability to respond to him intelligently. He really has flourished on the back of the incompetence of, 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 the, of the media that is supposedly opposing him, but is actually helping him. I don't at all believe that you're done with this subject. I'm not. Um, <laughs> so if beyond the anger, we're not going to have new modes or collective modes of transcendence, but we may have a sense of greater, ne greater need to, to fight uh, injustice. Um, your, 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 your view of the Nietzsche, your view of the, of the Buddha, you admire them both in sense because they, they, didn't, they, they didn't abide by fantasy. There was a certain realism to them. And it wasn't about any transcendent answer. It was about healing the individual. What are, why aren't you thinking about the next stage and telling us how to heal? I know if, I have a beard, but I'm not a guru. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but in a sense, you are. You're going deeper and deeper and deeper into the problem over the years. You've identified the intellectual underpinnings of it. Um, you've identified how, it's, how, how it goes from place to place. You've identified your interests are in suffering, in nihilism. 
you, you have deep distrust of systems that give us false hope. It, I, I realize you are a writer, you are not a political uh, pamphleteer, but at no point do you want to lay down something that says, listen people, I think this might be a good answer for the next stage in, in human history. I think that'll be the end of, end of me. Um, <laughs> in, in, in many ways. You know, I feel that so much of my energy, in fact, um, I don't have enough energy to diagnose the problems that are diagnosed correctly. That even that is a difficult, impossible task for me. To then prescribe solutions is one step too far for me to take. I believe I in you, Pankash. I think you can do it. You're very kind to say that, but I think I will stick to diagnosing the problem correctly. But in all because seriousness, but you are leading us to that, though. You are, this is why your book frustrated me so much. This is why I wrote all over the back of it. This is why I had to write about it. It's I'd like, like to what see that. next? I'm not showing it to you. Because <laughs> there's curse words. <laughs> but you've left us with a diagnosis, and I think we're craving for more. But in any case, I won't harangue you, and I want to thank, and I want, once again, to welcome Pankaj Mishra to Los Angeles. Thank you. Raul Ayala. So I have a question. What, what relationship do you see with this age of anger that I have not yet read and the change or decline in the U.S. Super, as a superpower? Rage and disaffection that you see in this country amongst um, what has been described as a white working class has a great deal to do with the, their declining fortunes Relatively speaking, of course, um, the fact that China or various other East Asian countries have started to do what people in this country were doing extremely well for a long time, and that jobs have essentially disappeared and then reappeared in different parts of the world, and that these skills, these, 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 these talents that exist here suddenly cannot be employed anymore. Uh, I feel that in, in many ways what uh, we confront here is a case of blocked mobility and even downward mobility. In a place like India, in a place like Indonesia or even China, you know, people are struggling with slow upward mobility or blocked upward mobility. But here, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a case of people feeling that whatever uh, opportunities they had and their parents and grandparents had are shrinking, that their children, especially the ones who have not been to college, who have not been educated properly, they are in no position to benefit from these globalized networks of, of, of capital. And I think you know, in, in that sense, the economic crisis of 2008 was absolutely crucial in basically making a lot of people see that this is simply not, this society, this system is simply not working out for them. And that was the beginning, Tea Party, various other, uh, Occupy, um, all these sort of eruptions of, 
of uh, of rage and and disaffection, and finally culminating in the in the election of Trump. I want to know. Um, there's such a negative, um, angry vibe now. <laughs> but I wanted to know: Do you have an idea of what progress or how our world should be? Because being young, I refuse to believe that this is going to be. And having a daughter, I refuse to believe that this is how the world's going to be. So, do you, if you could paint um, your world the way it should be, where, you know, how it should be, what's your view on that? Damn it! That was the best question of the evening. <laughs> You, you were wanting to ask that, you? <laughs> you know, I, I really think, I can only really think of the places that I have known personally in my life, and I have a vision of what they, would be, they should be like. I've spent most of my adult life in a village in India, in, in the mountains, and if you ask me that question about the world, I would say that is my world. Uh, that is, I can, I, can, I can sort of prescribe, perhaps, reluctantly, a vision for what that village should look like in 20 years' time or, or 10 years' time. The world is something too abstract for me. And again, it's sort of, in, you know, prescribing what the world should look like uh, would be perhaps falling into the same error that many of the people who have brought us to this crisis have already made. So I think, uh, uh, I feel that we should get away from these abstractions and think about where we are situated in the world today. And where we are situated is something that is defined by relations with the people around us, uh, the specific communities we belong to. And to have a vision of that particular community, a community where there is no violence, uh, where some notions of justice prevail and there are institutions there ensuring that justice is done. And, and, and justice is done in a broader sense, uh, social justice, economic justice. And I think um, in, 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 in many ways we need to return to these local ideas as opposed to thinking broadly or thinking about the world at large. My name is Shahid, and I'll remain a one-name person because uh, that has some baggage with it. Uh, I went through the transition uh, that, that you're talking about, and the transition to atheism, very comfortably. So I feel comfortable in asking uh, the question uh, that I'm about to ask. You talked about the first American experiment and said it had all land and resources available to it. I think that glosses over the suffering of the people who had the land and the suffering of the black people on whose back the uh, wealth was generated. So this uh, anger is more towards injustice than towards any transition, right? In many ways, what we are also looking at is the discrediting of a particular ideology, you know, which was, as I said, of, of growth and expansion. And what we failed to examine was the incredible amount of violence, dispossession, suffering that went into creating this success story. 
and of course the historical victims of that violence are now making their claim have they have been making their claim for for a long time and now of course uh, they they are they are making their claim even more strongly that where do they belong in this particular narrative in this particular story so this is this is what i mean that the 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 narrative the idea the so called dream of material success is in crisis at multiple levels it's not just an economic crisis it's also an intellectual crisis it's a moral crisis because we are suddenly confronting the enormous human costs of the success that was first you know uh, that was first paid by the indigenous peoples of this country and of course the um, african americans thank you my name is joanna plowska and i feel like my question is slightly related to this gentleman's question but your book came out in early 2017 and so much has happened as we're moving by the speed of news as you could say uh the me too movement women coming up people of color coming up there's so much anger on the left um that almost rivals the anger on the right that led to Trump being elected you know we talked about Brexit and Trumpism but I'd love to hear your reflections on how that anger and what it accomplished in the election has stoked a whole other kind of cohort of angry humans and just your thoughts on I feel the Trump has been great for us in in <laughs> in in precisely this way that it has really alerted us to the tasks to the unfinished tasks of previous generations and you know which unfortunately now the younger generation has to fulfill i think the previous generations i'm one of them i belong to uh, have were, were, were very lax um and they were too blinded by their own investments their own faith in you know certain ideas of 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 progress and all these kind of you know ideas of post that we were entered a post racial age with obama and so on and so forth i think a lot of those illusions have shattered so we are confronted with and trump has helped expedite that confrontation with reality uh, we we know that there is so much to be done so many injustices that need to be addressed so many inadequacies so many problems and this is what i feel that the last year i've i've actually written this uh, has been the most hopeful for me in 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 recent decades as the first time that things that could not be discussed in the united states that were not mainstream at all if you said that you were in belief in, you were you were in favor of some kind of a fair uh system you would be described as essentially a uh, crypto socialist or, or 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 someone who was leading us all straight to the gulag now <laughs> young people are talking about a, a a fair society they're talking about a just society this is something really really very heartening you know the fact that um, the women's movement has become this 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 enormously strong it still not it still doesn't have a kind of institutional base yet we it, it remains to be seen what kind of presence it will have in electoral politics but the fact that so many people have been mobilized so many people have been galvanized by the sheer presence of this man in the white house into politics into political action 
And I think, you know, this is actually really, as I said, uh, the most hopeful, hopeful year in, in recent American history for that reason. And, and, and thank God, th let's thank uh, God for bringing us, giving us Trump. <laughs> in that sense, you know. Okay, the evening is over. <laughs> Hi, my name is Alexis Andrashi. Um, I was wondering, what do you feel about uh, the lack of economic upward mobility globally? and how it's linked to the explosion of population around the globe, and also how that can also link in with giving voices through social media to people that normally wouldn't have a voice, stoking a lot of that anger. We can't take a Malthusian view of this because you know, uh, I think there is enough uh, there in terms of resources uh, for all of us to live pretty good lives. But if you have such extremes of inequality as we have seen in the last two, two and a half decades, everywhere, in every society, even societies that were famous for their egalitarian ethos like, like, uh, like China or India have become horribly, horribly unequal. Or places like Africa, you know, one man or two people basically being um, worth more than the entire GDP. Uh, that kind of inequality means that a lot of people feel left out. And of course, they are also exposed constantly to images of the good life being led by these, this, these, these privileged folks. So social media, the internet in general, exposing the left behinds, the marginalized, to these fantasies of, of, of affluence that are actually being realized by some people makes them even angrier. It makes them even more frustrated. You know, previously, uh, when I was growing up in, in India in the 70s and 80s, uh, the only people I could compare myself to or my, my situation to were the people around me. There was no real form of media. I mean, you know, the, the movies, but you knew the movies were fantasy. <laughs> um, you weren't really thinking they were, they were real people. But now it's, it's the same person living in the same town can very quickly compare himself to someone living in great splendor in, 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 in Connecticut and think they should also have that. Mm -hmm. And there is an ideology, especially neoliberalism, which encourages this, this idea that if only you educate yourself, if only you work hard, if only you deploy your talents uh, well enough, you will also make it. So that notion that this is all within reach, and of course it is not within reach, uh, makes, 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 it, makes it even much harder and much more frustrating for people. Well, that's all the time we have for tonight's program. But before we close, I'd like to thank the Japanese American National Museum for bringing us into their beautiful hall here. I'd also like to thank all of you for joining us tonight. And please, again, stick around for the reception, grab a drink. And we also have Skylight Books just outside selling Pankaj Mishra's latest book, Age of Anger, A History of the Present. And finally, a big, warm round of applause for Gregory Rodriguez and Pankaj Mishra. Thank you.